We've been doing a series on the Christmas movies during Advent. We've been using these Christmas movies to, as kind of a launch board, as a, as a diving board, so to speak, to dive into the pool of meaning that is Christmas. Why did Christ come? What's the significance of it? And this morning I want to use the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Has anyone seen that movie? Maybe? A couple of you? Probably more than they've seen the movie from last week, Home Alone. Even though that's a classic, classic. It's a good movie. But this movie came out in 1947. It's been around a little while. But did you know that when it came out in the theaters, how many of you saw it in the theaters? Anybody? Can you remember? Okay. Just, you never know. Floyd said he was too young for that. Well, it, you know, 1947, that was a long time ago. But um, it actually didn't do well in the theaters. Uh, after its run was over, uh, the director was in the hole about $500,000, which was a lot of money, both then and now. And um, it wasn't as popular as it is now, and it wasn't until really 1974, almost 30 years later, when a clerical error caused the copyright to lapse. And then TV, TV stations were able to show It's a Wonderful Life royalty-free. And that's why they began to show it. All the time. Every station. And that's why everybody got to know the story. And everybody felt, well, it was a good story, but everybody became exposed to it. And they enjoyed it. And that happened in 1974 and lasted all the way to 1993. So almost 20 years of royalty-free production. On the, you know, the TV could run the show. And so we were inundated with this wonderful life. And it's just a great story. And it's become very popular and the movie still obviously played today. And the main question the movie seeks to answer is, what makes life wonderful? That's what the story is all about. It's a great title. And I was talking to my son the other day. I was talking to him about the sermon. I told him I was going to be using the It's a Wonderful Life. And I explained, you know, the whole purpose of the show is to try to define what a wonderful life is. And I was telling him, I said, you know, if you go around town and you were to ask people, hey, would you like a wonderful life or a terrible life? Which, would, you know, which one would they choose? Well, everybody would say, I want a wonderful life. But the question then becomes, well, what is a wonderful life? That's the point, right? What is it? And do we have wonderful lives or do we not? Do you feel like you have one? Maybe, maybe not. But the storyline of the movie is that you have the main character, George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart. George is an ambitious young man that is looking forward to leaving sleepy Bedford Falls for greener pastures. He wants to travel. He wants to see the world. He wants to do great things. And while he's still in Bed- Bedford Falls as a young man, he falls in love with a young girl named Mary, played by Donna Reed. And some time passes, and they decide to get married. And as they're heading out for their honeymoon, an emergency comes up in his father's business, the Bailey Building and Loan Company. And the building alone is the only lending company in town that is standing in the way of greedy Mr. Potter from taking over the whole town and owning the whole town. You see, the, the building alone lends money to those of the working class so that they can afford their own homes. Whereas Mr. Potter owns a lot of real, realty in the town and he wants people to keep renting from him because he wants to own the whole town. And the only thing standing in his way is the Bailey building and loan. And so George has this decision to make. He's going on his honeymoon. There's an emergency at the building and loan. He's got to make a decision. Do I go 
on my honeymoon, which will in turn be a launch pad into this life that he was wanting, or will he stay in Bedford Falls, try to rescue the building alone, and he knows by doing that he's going to end up staying in Bedford Falls probably the rest of his life. Well, he decides to stay and save his father's business and help the town. And years pass, he's living in Bedford Falls, he's scraping by, making a living. And then Mr. Potter, in the meantime, is still trying to take over the building alone and take over the town of Bedford Falls. And then one day he gets his opportunity. George's Uncle Billy misplaces a large deposit that is to go to the bank. And by misplacing this deposit, it threatens to close down the building alone and it threatens to put, uh, eventually put George Bailey in jail for mishandling of funds. So all of this is unraveling, and this leads George to his breaking point, where he does not believe he has a wonderful life. In fact, he believes that his life is anything but wonderful. He actually begins to believe that actually everybody in Bedford Falls would be better off if, if he never existed at all. And we've all experienced that to some degree or another. I know I have. Some level of despair, thinking that your know, life is not all that I thought it was going to be. Uh, I thought I was going to have this type of life, and now I don't. And then you begin to wonder, you know, does my life count for anything? You know, what does the future hold? Would people just be better off if I wasn't even here? These are the kind of thoughts that, was, that were going through George Bailey's mind, and perhaps they've gone through your mind as well. And this is what happens when we attach the concept of a wonderful life to things that can be taken away. Because once they are taken away or threatened, that's when we begin to spiral into despair. And this is where George Bailey is in the movie at this point as he's contemplating suicide. So the question is, what do you think makes life wonderful? What makes a wonderful life? And you may be like George Bailey and think, well, you know, if I could just travel more, my life would be wonderful. Or if I could just earn more money, then my life would be wonderful. Or if I could just have more success in what I'm doing and see more accomplishment, see more fruit from my labor. Or if I was married, or if I was single. Or if I have children, or if I didn't have children. You know, there's all kinds of what ifs. If I could just fill in the blank, then my life would be wonderful. And maybe even this morning, maybe it's even amplified during Christmas, uh, you begin to consider the fact that maybe your life isn't wonderful. Or maybe you don't think it is. Well, the movie takes a turn when George meets Clarence, Angel Second Class. And Clarence helps George to understand what really matters in life. He helps George to see that he actually has a wonderful life. But this morning, I want us to consider that question. Do we have a wonderful life? Is our life wonderful? And I'm just going to make an assumption. You know, we all gathered in this place because we believe that perhaps the wonderful life has something to do with Christ. That's why we're here. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, born into the world, born in a manger. And I'm assuming that we're here this morning, not just to escape the cold, but we're here this morning because we believe there's a connection between the wonderful life and the Christ. So why did He come? Why did Jesus come? That's the question. 
And I think if we can answer that, we can get some insight into what is a wonderful life. Did Jesus come so that I can make more money or that you can make more money? Did Jesus come so that we can travel more? Or did He come so that our lives can be friction-free? Why did He come? I think if we can answer that question, then we will understand what makes a life wonderful. You know, Jesus gives us a glimpse of this in John 10.10. This is what Jesus says. He says, on the one hand, you have the thief. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Then He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Sounds a lot like the wonderful life, doesn't it? I came that they may have a wonderful life. But the question is, what is that? Why did He come? And based on this verse, it seems that Jesus came to give us this life, but what what does it entail? Now, here's what I want you to think about. What Jesus is saying... Now, you need to decide whether you believe Him or not. But what He's saying is, the wonderful life is tied to why He came. In other words, He's saying, it is impossible to have a wonderful life apart from Him. That is why He came. And so if we are pursuing some other life apart from Christ, then we're not pursuing the wonderful life, we're pursuing a wayward life. In other words, we're grasping at shadows that we will never take hold of. And at some point in your life, you will have a bridge moment where you realize that there is more to life than the things of the world. And that's where George Bailey ended up. And maybe, perhaps, you've been at that place as well. So, what is a wonderful life and how do we get it? That is the question. Like I said, the wonderful life must be tied inextricably to Jesus. And I believe if we can, we can find out why Jesus came, then we can have a better understanding of what it means to have a wonderful life. So first of all, I'm just going to give you a couple this morning. First of all, the wonderful life is a life that is forgiven. Just think about this. Why did Jesus come? Jesus was born in a manger over 2,000 years ago. And he was given the name Jesus, which means God saves. Matthew tells us that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Luke tells us that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.15, listen to what he says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's why He came. So, reading those verses, and there's plenty more you can read about why Christ came, and it all centers on this idea that He came to save the lost, to forgive sin, to put us in a right relationship with God. So I don't see how it's possible for us to have a wonderful life apart from forgiveness, the forgiveness of God. And this is what I see in my own life, and maybe you can relate to this. I can remember when I first came to Christ, forgiveness was a big deal. Right? Can you remember that? The idea that God would forgive me of my sin was a big deal. But after a while, it became not so big of a deal. It was almost, I began to almost take it for granted. And I still can. 
But then when I read over the Gospels again, I read through the New Testament again, I see Jesus came to forgive sin, to deal with my sin issue. It was such a terrible and huge issue that apart from Him, I have no hope to deal with it. He's the only one that can guarantee forgiveness for me. And so only Christ can save us from our sins. So the wonderful life has to be tied to the idea of being forgiven by God. If Jesus came to give me life and give it to the full, then it must be tied to why He came, which is to save the lost, which means to die for my sin, forgive my sin, so that I can be in a right relationship with God. And so the wonderful life, if it is going to be experienced, must be experienced through Christ. So how do you experience God's forgiveness? Well, here's the thing about God. As you read through the Bible, God is serious about sin. He obviously does not like sin. But one thing about Him is that He's always willing to forgive sin. So He's always in a posture of forgiveness if we would just admit it and turn to Him. If we would just turn from our sin give our lives to Christ, then we have forgiveness. It's yours. You don't have to earn it. It is yours. But you have to be honest with your situation. You have to be honest with your standing before God. And you have to relinquish control and give your life to Christ. That's what Lily was saying up here about baptism. She's identifying publicly with you as the people of God saying, I am relinquishing control of my 10-year-old life And I'm going to follow Jesus all the days of my life. Whether you're 10 or 90, that must be the posture of the Christian. Relinquishing control, embracing Christ as our Savior and Lord, and God offers forgiveness and new life. And so that's the first characteristic of the wonderful life. It must be a life that has experienced the forgiveness of God. And second, a second characteristic of the wonderful life is that it lives for Christ. Remember, if the wonderful life is tied to Christ, then that means the only way you can have a wonderful life is is if you are in Christ. That means someone who is not in Christ cannot have this life unless they are in Christ. So it's not about money, travel, pleasure, friendships, marriage, children. It's not about that. Those things are blessings, secondary blessings. But the the wonderful life is experienced in relation to God. And that only can come through forgiveness. And secondly, it only comes through us living for Christ. See, forgiveness puts us in a right relationship with God. And He's forgiven us of all our sin in Christ. And that enables us now to live for Christ. I want to share with you three brief Scripture passages. Two written by the Apostle Paul. One by the Apostle Peter. The first one comes from 2 Corinthians 5.15. Now listen to Paul. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Just jot these down. He says, And he died for all, meaning Jesus. Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, which we were all doing apart from Christ. That's our natural inclination, live for self. But he's saying Christ died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. So this tells me that this life that Jesus gives is is a life that lives for Him. Then, over in Galatians 2.20, this is what Paul says. 
He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is what baptism, baptism is a beautiful picture of this because it's so visual. You know, when you go under that water, it's saying, I have been crucified with Christ. My life before Christ has, is dead to me. I don't want to go back there. I want to live this raised Christ life, this new resurrected life until you bring him out of the water and this new life. And I love it because the water symbolizes, you know, this washing away of sin and this new life that is yours in Christ. It's a wonderful symbol. And this is what Paul's saying here. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but listen to what he says. It's no longer I who live, but guess what? The life I'm living, I'm living in a certain way because I'm in a relationship with God. I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we see in these passages that to be forgiven by God enables us than to live for Him. And I've said this over and over again, and that is, we do not obey God to be accepted by God. Okay? We are accepted by God in Christ, and therefore we obey Him. That's what it means to be forgiven by grace. Then in 1 Peter 2.21 we read, Peter says, for this, to, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. So Jesus died for our sin, but He also left us an example. Now, what does this look like? Well, we could go on and on about the different ways that we can imitate Christ, but one specific way I want to just highlight this morning is in the area of giving. Because this is, a way, this is where I believe this idea of giving of ourselves uh, intersects with this movie, It's a Wonderful Life. At the movie's end, you may remember this, at the, at the, as the movie comes to an end, George realizes the positive impact he has had on the people of Bedford Falls. And you have that last scene, you know, where they're around the Christmas tree in George's living room, and they're all singing, and then George's little brother comes in, Harry, and they all propose a toast to George, and Harry lifts up his glass, and he says, I toast to my big brother George. You remember what he says? The richest man in town. Now we know that he's not the richest man in town based on money. Mr. Potter is the richest man in town. But he's saying that because George is rich because of the positive impact he has made on the people. How he has given of himself to bless the people of Bedford Falls. And as I was thinking about that, I thought about, you know, if, as you and I experience the forgiveness that comes, to, that comes from God through the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ, you know, we're, we're transformed and we are compelled to be givers. We're compelled to be givers, givers of ourselves, givers of what we have for the glory of God and the good, good of other people. We begin to be very concerned with the well-being of the people around us whether they're in our church or not. And as we realize what God has done for us in Christ, this, this compulsion to give grows. 
And we want to give of ourselves. We want to give of our resources and our time for the good of the people around us. Not just hoard it up for ourselves, but we want to give for the good of others. And you know, you think about giving, it has an infinite number of applications. I mean, I, we could go on and on and we could just, I could pull the audience here and everybody could have a different way we could give. But I just want to give you just a few that may help us even in this season. And I was just telling my family this the other day. You know, we want to err on the side of generosity as Christians. When in doubt, err on the side of generosity. Because when you are generous, especially when people don't deserve it, you are giving them just a glimpse of the grace of God. Because that's what God has done for you, right? And for me. We didn't deserve it, yet He poured out His love toward us in Christ and made it possible for us to experience His forgiveness. And so we need to err on the side of generosity when given the opportunity. Also, I would say, as you give of yourselves, give of your listening ears. You know, just be present where you are. And I just know in my own heart, I can tell, even especially when you're gathering with friends and family and so much is going on, you can just spend your time thinking about the next thing that you're not present. And I think just giving that attention, it shows that you value someone. And it's a way that we can give of ourselves to those around us. So don't waste, don't waste the present by worrying about the future. Also, I want to encourage you to look for ways that you can give to those in need in our church family and in our community. Now, we do have ways to help those in need. We have uh, a, a team. We have you know, deacons in our church and staff, obviously. You could talk to us. But I also want to encourage you, though, as you see needs, just seek to meet them. And if you need help, talk to some other folks in the church to see if they can help you. Or you can come talk to me or talk to the deacons or our benevolence team. But just look for needs. And it may, it may not be financial. It may be you know, lending a hand or what it may, whatever it may be. But just look for ways to give of yourself. Because like Jesus says, it's better to, to give than to receive. And then I would say, too, you know, maybe think about uh, a handwritten card this time of year of thanks or encouragement. Or maybe even a handmade gift uh, just to show someone that you love them. Just thinking of ways to give of yourself for the good of others. And you just don't underestimate how God can use you in the lives of people. That was George's problem. He just did not realize how he could be used to positively impact the lives of people in his community. And obviously we don't have Clarence Angel second class, but we do have the scripture that's even better and more reliable. And it tells us that God can do far more than we can ask or imagine through a life that is submitted to Him. And so don't underestimate God. And so let me ask you, do you want to be the richest man or woman in town? That's right. (laughs) Do you want a wonderful life? Absolutely. Well, here's my suggestion to you. Give yourself away for the good of others and to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you for the yes that rings out even in the service, speaking for all of our hearts, that we do want a life that counts. We want a wonderful life. And your word is very clear that that life can be only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning, wherever we are, 
Lord, that you would lead us to that place where we know we are forgiven by Christ, through Christ. And Lord, compel us now to be givers, givers of ourselves for the good of others and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.